In the wake of the financial crisis, a number of entrepreneurs and some bigger companies decided that they would try to use algorithms to manage our money. When these products, which are now called robo-advisors, first launched, the expectation was that they would soon take over all of investing and that all of us would have our money managed by algorithms soon enough. That hasn't happened. Now in 2019, there are hundreds of billions of dollars around the world, particularly in the U.S. and Western Europe, managed by robo-advisors, but demand has been slower than expected. But they have driven adoption of investing among millennials, many of whom might be sitting in cash if they didn't have such a simple way to invest their money. At a high level, robo-advisors digitize the process of investing. They give you transparency into how your investments are performing and basically make the decisions for you. But of course, there's more to it than that. So how do you build a robo-advisor and what's underneath the hood? On this episode of The Bid, Adam French, a founder of Scalable Capital, joins us to answer those questions. Scalable is Europe's fastest growing digital wealth manager. Adam talks to us about the challenges he faced in building the company from the ground up, how he sought to increase transparency and trust in the investment process, and why he thinks we're all really just living in a virtual reality world. I'm your host, Mary Catherine Leader. We hope you enjoy. Adam, thank you so much for joining today. Thank you. It's great to be here. So you are the CEO of Scalable Capital in the UK. It's Europe's fastest growing digital wealth manager. Can you quickly tell us a little bit about what Scalable Capital is and how a digital wealth manager is different from a traditional wealth manager? So we would call ourselves a digital wealth manager. And by that, we really think about it as how you would build a wealth management firm today. You know, it's about being where your clients actually exist on an online world. We want to be in the apps. We want to be on their social networks. So it's about how you would build a wealth manager as if you had no legacy whatsoever. And that's not just the apps, but it's also all of the processes as well. So we're talking about automating the investment management, automating the client reporting, and ultimately engaging with the clients in an ongoing way, which is way more convenient than it would be if they had to deal with a traditional financial advisor who would have to meet them face-to-face maybe once a quarter. We can make sure that we're getting information to our clients in a contextual way, in a timely way, in a relevant way. And because a lot of it is automated, we can lower the cost of the provision of the service as well, which means that you've got something which is very convenient and also lower cost than what clients would have access to through traditional means. But there's also another huge difference, which is that our service is way more accessible. Traditional financial services, traditional financial advice, only available to a tiny sliver of people, what we would believe to kind of be the top 1%. And now we're delivering financial advice and an investment portfolio to the masses which is something that the traditional world have not been able to offer. And that's an area that we think really differentiates the world of digital wealth management. So all of that makes a lot of sense, but not everyone has decided to start a digital wealth manager. So what were you doing when you decided to start Scalable Capital and why did you decide to start it? So I got a background in traditional financial services and it was there along with my co-founders that I think we all faced the same problem. It was a problem that we had personally, but also a problem that was brought to us from family and friends which is the question around, you know, what should I do with my money? And for some of us, that was around not really having the right options available. You know, I wanted something which was low cost because I understood that if there are high costs to the investment process, then you're likely to reduce your investment returns. So for me, it was not being able to really find the right thing. But for others, it was around not even having access. We're also quite 
lucky as well because we all worked in an area within our kind of old professions where we were very much aware of how technology was impacting the institutional world of investing and how it made that way more automated, way more efficient. And ultimately, you could drive efficiencies through cost savings, etc. And yet we hadn't seen that enter the world of wealth management. So it felt like we had, as a team of co-founders, the right set of skills to be able to kind of bring the technological angle to be able to try and build this firm from scratch, but then also understand the client challenge. And that's something that when we look back kind of over the last five to six years when we started this journey, that it wouldn't have been possible 10 to 15 years ago because of things like the cost of cloud computing coming down to ridiculously low levels so we can actually compute and personalize our client portfolios at scale to the development of the ETF market, which allows us to obviously invest our client funds into very low-cost diversified vehicles. And it really felt like the right time to go on such a journey was over the last five or six years when we decided to leave our jobs and give scalable capital the launch pad that it needed. So since you started this journey six, seven years ago, what's been hardest, contrary to your expectations, harder than you expected? Other than the normal pains of trying to grow a business from scratch, the hardest thing has been actually integrating into incumbent financial services Mm -hmm. firms. We made a few good decisions early on, which I think we benefited from. For example, we decided very early on that we wanted to make it an international platform. So provided to, in the beginning, UK and German clients. And to do that, we had to find local providers to help us with custodial banking services, with payment provision, with trading, with brokerage, and finding those local partners that had the open technology that we needed to connect to was really, really hard. We're talking about months and months, if not years, ultimately, of the initial work and then the ultimate refinement of those integrations with other providers. But now that we've done it, we've obviously got a platform which is really flexible. And this is where our whole kind of flexibility came from when we're working with our B2B partners. So we right now have about five implementations live of scalable capital kind of style businesses that we're working with, either financial institutions or corporates, and obviously our own implementation with our own consumer brand. Looking back, fantastic decision. Going through that process, really painful, because it made it such that we had to put in a lot more time and effort and obviously development cost before being able to actually get something live in the market and to learn and to iterate and test with clients. Well, that investment in making your platform scalable, lowercase s, no pun intended, to work with incumbents makes a ton of sense because that's been so much of the challenge in the U.S. is that the promise of digital advice hasn't necessarily played out in part because legacy technology platforms are really challenging. Clients want different things. And the reality is that a lot of customers aren't really moving from their traditional bank. They may try a digital app, but they're not going to move all their accounts. So with that in mind, what do you think we'll see in terms of customer behavior? Where will people be banking and investing in two years, five years, 10 years? Only with scalable, only with digital entrants like that, or with some traditional banks too? So I think it's really hard to give you a definitive answer, but that's also been the scalable strategy. We have a direct-to-consumer business where we currently have about 40,000 client relationships where we manage their money, we talk to them on the phone, they understand who we are and they're engaging with us as a brand. But we also power the investment services of the incumbent world and also more and more digital challengers who are coming to market who would also like uh, to have a scalable solution as part of their, let's call it, digital bank or so. 
And so right now we're not sure who's going to win that, if anybody, maybe actually there's a space in the market for all of us. But what we're very aware of is the fact that with our own brand out there, we get to talk to clients every day. We get to learn from them and we get to develop our platform in line with their needs and their wants and their desires. And we categorize them quite broadly as smart professionals who really are digitally native and trust new firms to be doing financial related stuff online. There's no real other attributes that we see. It's not an age thing. Right. What is the average age? Average age is just in the mid 40s. It's not a millennial thing. Right. A lot of people assume that the online investing world is something for young people, first time investors. It's not actually the case, but it's definitely such that we have more 35-year-olds than we have 55-year-olds. So there is a slant towards people that are younger, but it's more to do with digital savviness more than anything else. And how much of that was deliberate versus what you noticed transpired and who actually was getting traction with your platform? So we were lucky that we weren't the first. It meant that we could learn from the mistakes of others. Mm -hmm. And one mistake that we felt was being made by the initial cohort of companies that were coming to the market was that they were providing a service for the broad mass market. And that's a really hard market to conquer. So we made sure that when we launched the platform, that our whole identity was focused on a group of customers that have a higher level of financial savviness, Mm -hmm. because they're the ones that came to us and said, this is exactly what I'm looking for. And that's how we got our first 1,000 clients, 5,000 clients, 10,000 clients. And to be honest with you, our identity hasn't changed much since. Because we're not going after the one millionth and first client we're really still in a very early stage of our business. And they're the clients that have resonated well with our business. And then obviously there's the whole element of trust and layered on top of that. These new online propositions, especially in the early days, you know, no one had heard of the term digital wealth management mm-hmm. or robo-advice. The press hadn't really started to talk about these businesses. And one unfortunate thing that I keep noticing time and time again is a lot of these businesses only have the resources to do digital marketing. And the problem with digital marketing only as a distribution strategy or a marketing strategy is that you're competing against quite spurious investment propositions as well. And, you know, we saw that most prominently last January or so when cryptocurrency was at its peak. It obviously meant that you were competing against firms that were selling rather complex and risky investments to the same Mm -hmm. type of investment group. So for us, it was about trying to build a brand that people could trust within a smaller cohort, and then also being willing to use marketing methods outside of just the digital landscape. So we supplement a lot of what we do with the offline marketing world. So be that face-to-face meetings, we host seminars where we invite 100, 200 people into a room, they get to meet the founders, they get to meet the team, ask questions. There's a lot of value in the traditional way of actually marketing these businesses, Mm -hmm. especially in the beginning where, like I said, we're not looking for the one millionth customer. This theme you touched on about trust and whether it's that correlated with established brands with technology or not, is something we've talked about a lot on The Bid, particularly because we increasingly trust these very personal services to massive companies who do things with our data uh, in a really evolving regulatory regime. So particularly in financial services, and you're at the forefront of new ways of interacting with our money and technology, what have you learned about what builds trust with consumers? What works? And how applicable do you think that is in the sort of new world? I think that you're spot on. Trust is one of the biggest challenges that we had as a startup. And we try to engage clients on that topic as much as possible. It's not something that we want to shy away from. For ourselves, it's getting ourselves directly in front of clients as much as we possibly can. 
people still trust humans more than they do algorithms, even though it's been scientifically proven in some areas that algorithms can beat humans. For decision-making purposes, at the end of the day, we still want to hear a story. We still want to speak to people. I've heard clients say before, they want to see the white of my eyes before making an investment decision. (laughs) The more we can do that in the early stages, it then allows us as we start to scale to have then built that early trust with that kind of early group of users. And then we have to focus less and less on that over time as we become kind of more of a brand and bigger than the individuals. And we continue to run about 200 face-to-face events a year across the UK and Germany. The other element as well is that, and it's again to do with this, people trust humans way more than they do technology for certain areas. It's being present for customer services reasons. You know, yes, we're a robo and yes, we automate as much as we can where things can be automated. But we have an award-winning client services team that provide really high quality customer service related solutions to our clients, be it in an app, be it on the phone, be it via email. But it's unfortunate that we actually get the ability to compete there because I think financial services have done such a poor job historically at customer services that just by staffing a relatively small but high quality unit that can really help our clients with whatever needs they have, there's a lot of value there. And we obviously monitor all of these statistics. We're constantly optimizing kind of the solutions that we have. So be it the way that we have integrated chat within our app, be it the way that people engage on the phone, collecting as much of that data as possible and running analytics on it and then ultimately integrating that with the product development process that we have. We have a smaller organization which can really think about how we can integrate certain solutions into the product that we're ultimately building as well. And that's a different organizational structure, but that's a different topic altogether. Last question is, so you have all this data and analytics on what people are doing with their money. You have a digitally savvy, comfortable group of customers. How has Scalable changed, if at all, how people engage with their money? Are they more likely to sell quickly? Are they asking more questions? Do they engage more often? What we do see is that in the beginning, people are very untrusting of what we're doing. And I kind of measure this in how many times do they open the app in the first week or the first couple of weeks of being a client. And it can be sometimes up to several times a day because they're just uncomfortable or not as comfortable with the process in the beginning because it's the first time they've they've kind of seen what we're doing. Over time, you see the amount of time that people are opening their app, looking at what's going on, decrease to a frequency of kind of once a week, once a month. Around that, what we kind of supplement the app with is a huge ongoing engagement strategy around what's going on in their portfolio, what's going on in the markets, which is also personalized to the way that they interact with the service. So even though we're providing a lot of automation, the service also provides a lot of personalization. Because we can measure with the way that you behave, the way you're logging in, what you're doing when the market is performing in different ways. So are you selling? Are you buying? Are you canceling a monthly payment that you might have coming in? And as we all know, investing for the long term Mm -hmm. is really where you get the best compounded returns. And so we do the best we can to try and get people to reduce the bad behaviors and ultimately increase the good behaviors. And since we've started kind of measuring the effectiveness of some of those campaigns, you can see that clients are undertaking those behaviors less and less. So for us, it's all about these kind of marginal incremental gains that we can do to try and help our clients to make the right decisions. Well, that's extremely hard change to be driving. We also have similar efforts, and I know how hard it is. So congratulations on that, and lots, lots more to come. So let's wrap with a quick rapid-fire round. Sound good? Sure. Okay. So how do you manage your money? Free scalable. 
there can't be a different answer. That no. is the right answer. No, that would be, <laughs> any other answer would be wrong. <laughs> In the spirit of technology, are you pro virtual reality or augmented reality? I'll flip the question a little bit. What's not to say that we're not already living in a virtual reality? So heavy. Serious question. Yeah, Yeah, you have me speechless here for a moment. It's what Elon Musk believes, right? Yeah, exactly, exactly. Favorite lunch meat? Chicken. Okay, so that was a trick question. I hear that your wife has a sausage shop. That is true. Why aren't you a supporter of her sausage shop? I've made too many sausages in the last (laughs) two years when she's been on the journey. So unfortunately, I can't say it anymore, truthfully. (laughs) (laughs) And in 10 years, what will robots be doing and not doing? I struggle with the 10-year one because we typically underestimate how much change is going to happen in the next 10 years. So if I was to say 10 years, then maybe robots will be living and breathing and walking uh, (laughs) among us. Nice Bill Gates reference there and a good answer. It's been such a pleasure talking to you. Thanks so much for joining us. And thanks for having me. This material is for informational purposes and is prepared by BlackRock is not intended to be relied upon as a forecast, research, or investment advice, and is not a recommendation, offer, or solicitation to buy or sell any securities or to adopt any investment strategy. The opinions expressed are as of the date of publication and are subject to change. The information and opinions contained in this material are derived from proprietary and non-proprietary sources deemed by BlackRock to be reliable and are not guaranteed as to accuracy or completeness. This material may contain forward-looking information that is not purely historical in nature. There is no guarantee that any forecast made will come to pass. Reliance upon information in this material is at the sole discretion of the listener. Past performance is not indicative of current or future results. This information provided is neither tax nor legal advice, and investors should consult with their own advisors before making investment decisions. The value of investments and the income from them can go down as well as up, and you may not get back the amount invested. In the U.S., this material is intended for public distribution. In the U.K., this is issued by BlackRock Investment Management UK Limited, authorized and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority, registered office, 12 Throgmorton Avenue, London, EC2N2DL, telephone, plus 44020-7743-3000. Registered in England and Wales, number 202-0394. For your protection, telephone calls are usually recorded. BlackRock is a trading name of BlackRock Investment Management UK Limited. In Singapore, this is issued by BlackRock Singapore Limited, co-registration number 200-10143N. In Hong Kong, this material is issued by BlackRock Asset Management North Asia Limited and has not been reviewed by the Securities and Futures Commission of Hong Kong. In Australia, issued by BlackRock Investment Management Australia Limited, ABN 13-006-165-975-AFSL-230-523, BIMAL. The material provides general information only and does not take into account your individual objectives, financial situation, needs, or circumstances. In Latin America, this material is for educational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice nor an offer or solicitation to sell or a solicitation of an offer to buy any shares of any fund. No securities regulators in Latin America have confirmed the accuracy of any information contained herein. 
The provision of investment management and investment advisory services is a regulated activity in Mexico, thus is subject to strict rules. For more information on the investment advisory services offered by BlackRock Mexico, please refer to the Investment Services Guide, available at www.blackrock.com mx. Copyright 2019, BlackRock Inc. All rights reserved. BlackRock is a registered trademark of BlackRock Inc. All other trademarks are those of their respective owners.